<coughs> Good start. <coughs> that's our, and that's our cold open, folks. Okay. Welcome back to Natural 19, the D&D podcast that's not perfect, but it's still pretty good. I am here today with a good friend of mine, John Solera. Hi, John. Hey, Josh. How are we doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm living the dream, my man. That's my response, and you stole it from me. I'll never forgive you for your, this atrocity. That's fine. Uh, okay. So, uh, John, we've known each other for quite some time, but we haven't been really tight until more recently. Um, how, let's, let's talk quickly about how we met. Yeah, sure. Uh, it was 2014. You okay. being a fantastic original playwright and uh, music. Okay, yeah, that Boo. guy. Uh, you being a big nerd. There it is. <laughs> you wrote a musical called Meant to Be, and I decided, because of my partner at the time, hey, let's both go out for this thing. Let's right. both go out for a musical. And you made it in, and she didn't. And then uh, we stuck together. And then here we are, uh, lovers. <laughs> yes. Why are you laughing? Uh, no reason. Great. So you, we met through theater, but we wouldn't start playing <clears throat> D&D together until later. And it's funny because I say that now and I'm realizing we've played very little D&D together. It's kind of the unfortunate but thing. But we've both played a lot of D&D. Absolutely. Um, so these guys have already heard about my antics. Um, sure. Though I will mention one of the few times we've been a player was in one of your one-offs. That was true. Uh, I was I was a uh, kobold rogue named Velk. Uh, who had a smoker voice, he talked like this all the time. But he had the actor feet, so I would always put on character voices because I can't play D&D without doing character voices. It's actually impossible. Uh, uh, studies have proven this. So. <laughs> uh, but I want to hear enough about me. I want to hear about your D&D experiences. Sure. I mean, that one-shot is a great one because that was the first time I'd ever written a one-shot. And, uh, you know, my idea of writing a one-shot was, okay, I have this town, and there's these, these, these adventurers... And I'm going to give the players three separate plot hooks because I have no idea how to run a one shot. Roughly forty five plot hooks. Roughly forty five plot hooks. Two hundred and seventeen plot hooks. It was just so many plot. He's hooks. kind of lowballing it, guys. Don't worry about <laughs> it. And uh, um, now hold on. I will. I will say this: D and D players do not listen. I was oh, that is like very, very explicit in what I in what I said when I said, "All right, your goal is this way. These tracks go the other way." Yeah, it's the same thing. Let's go this way, guys. Okay, well, in, in our defense, in our defense, I'm going to defend my actions here. Oh, yeah? It was, it was my decision to follow those tracks. Is your goal is this way, meaning, like, you gave us, like, a compass-like direction. <laughs> north! Like, yeah, gave us north, and you're like, these tracks go this way. I'm like, well, maybe the thing that took this person diverted its course. <laughs> like, we didn't know that this thing was going to stay exactly where the plot demanded it go, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I went, I went after the tracks, and we thought... <laughs> Ice monsters instead. Literally, what you could have done is, hey, these things go, this thing goes south. That doesn't sound like the word north, so I should probably not follow it. <laughs> okay, well, um, all right, so, uh, we're actually, not here to criticize my decisions as a player. We all know they're bad. Like, that's <laughs> that's no surprise to anyone. Now, your decisions as a DM, also bad, but you're also, also bad. god, so it doesn't matter because it all works. All right, we'll get into that later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so my actual, my, my uh, experience with uh, D&D. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the first time I ever played was, I was, I think, 13 years old, and it was a, a very small campaign, um, and I think we explored a tower, and there was the master, like, the actual master sword was there. Amazing. Amazing. Good, good, um, good. And I was playing a rogue at the time, and... 
I kid you not, the only thing that hit me that game, because at level one I had a 19 AC. Okay. The only thing that hit me that game was hail. <laughs> the weather. It, yeah. it almost killed me. It left me at three health. That's a hilarious testament to the wacky things that can happen if you played the indie to the letter. Uh, then I very recently picked up... Uh... Oh, right. Because you had got me into Kingdom Death, and yes. I had gotten a group together for that. And then uh, about seven King, months in... Kingdom Death, for those who don't know, is a very extreme horror tabletop gaming experience. An experience is the correct word for that. Yes. <laughs> but um, about seven months in, um, you know, we were all kind of sitting around and thinking, God, this game doesn't have a lot of narrative depth. And then it was that, that moment, something in my brain clicked and said, wait a minute, we don't want to play Kingdom Death. We want to play D&D. Yeah. That's what we've wanted yeah. the entire time. So that You could replace the words Kingdom Death in that sentence with any other game, and I feel like it's an epiphany everyone should have at some point in their lives. I really hope so. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. I think, you know, we're all playing table, tabletop games. Sure, sure. We're all nerds. Yeah. Right? At the heart of it all, we want to tell a story. Because Absolutely. we've had hundreds of fantasy stories told to us. And we've indulged ourselves in them. We've lived in them. And so being a part of that story is very magical to anyone involved in D&D. That's, that's something... I mean, that's why I play. Exactly. I feel like that's why a lot of people play. It's the effect of... It's the idea of collaborative storytelling. Yeah. It's about sitting around with a bunch of friends and having a good laugh about that stupid thing you just did. Absolutely. And it doesn't I, go away. <laughs> um, so then you started running a game for this uh, Kingdom Death group. Yes. And you've been DMing that ever since. How long has that been now? Oh, God. Roughly? That... Almost a year. Wow, very nice. Uh, we haven't played uh, quite every session, but... No, but still, anything <laughs> anything going for that long is a feat, I tell you. Yeah. Um, I'm just remembering now, I'm thinking back to my early days of D&D, um, because oh, when I God. first started playing, I was uh, 11, 12 years old, something like that, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Um, my mom found uh, a copy of first edition Dungeons & Dragons in the library for sale for like $10 with a starter kit. So uh, we had that, that's all we had. And that's back in the days when, like, Dwarf was a class. And, like, <laughs> uh, there were seven classes. That was, oh, what was that? The, the mid-70s, I think? Something like First that. Edition? Yeah, no, it was, so there were, there were seven classes, and, like, four of them were actual classes, and then there was, like, Elf, Halfling, and Dwarf, which was, like, <laughs> Elf was, like, Discount Wizard, Dwarf was Discount Fighter, Halfling was Discount Rogue, or Thief, as they were called back then. And then, like, there was Cleric, which was the only healing option in the game. Beauty. But anyway, I had a D&D birthday party, <laughs> even back then, and we all, like, everyone, we, we had, like, mugs, and everyone got to, like, paint the names of their characters on their mugs, oh, like... That's so sweet. And and this, I didn't realize it would be paving the way to my actual living later on down the road, <laughs> but uh, I, I like to think I've come a long way from there. I yeah. mean, I like to think that at, at, at the core of it all, we are all just 12-year-olds playing post edition D&D. Absolutely. You know, at the core of it... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also in the most literal sense, we're all twelve-year-olds. Deep inside of us, there is a twelve-year-old, <laughs> and I'm he not is pounding to get out. We will <laughs> we, not. We will not. No, he is our twelve-year-old. He belongs <laughs> to us now. So, yeah. So I've been uh, I've been DMing that group for uh, I think it's roughly a year now, and there have been highs and lows, ups and downs. I have learned a lot, not only as a DM, but as as a player, I've learned a lot. As a storyteller, as an absolutely, actor, absolutely, there were so many facets uh, to DMing, mm -hmm. and I've gotten to improve in a lot of areas. I feel like some of the best acting you have to do as a DM is after you make a secret role. 
Oh god! I literally had the other day. So there, um, this yeah. excellent fight. I'm gonna tell stories about this group all the time. I already told one. This is my second story about this group. There was a fight where one person was fighting an evil version of themselves inside their own mind. Okay. okay sure. sure. Uh, they had to kill. They they had their alignment switched by a deck of many things, and they had to go into their own mind to kill the evil version that they had created. <laughs> okay. And the, the the party was there helping them, and so I made I put imposed this rule uh, where I would impose disadvantage on. Anyone firing a ranged weapon into those two meleeing each other because they couldn't tell which yeah. one was which. Yeah, of course. And this Who led shoot? Well, well, no, it wasn't even disadvantage. Sorry, this what it was. Um, I would have to make a perception check because they had different equipment. Yeah, but there was they're all also both rogues. They're moving very fast. Yeah. So I would roll that perception check for them and say, Yeah, you got it. You know which one's one. You know which one's the real one. And they would stare at me and be like, But do I? Do and one of them <laughs> even commented like, He's such a good actor. He'll never tell us. I'm like, Yeah, you're right. I'm old. And like. I do tons of character voice and tons of acting, but I think that they're right. It's, it's, a, it's when a DM makes a secret role that that acting really comes into play because you have to straight face. You can't be like, uh, you, uh, you, you can't like, you can't give a, give away yeah. the secret. You don't want to, you don't want to give up any of that juicy tension. Juicy, juicy tension. So uh, originally we we're going to talk about what we preferred being player versus being dungeon master, but we have so much dungeon master stuff to talk to, and it's so refreshing to have a dungeon master on the show. So I just want to talk about dungeon master stuff. Is that cool? I mean, on, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. So when you're preparing a game, yeah, and this is something uh, obviously a huge part of D and D is improvisation, and one of the things um, Liz asked me on the first episode was how much of that kind of thing did I prepare. There was this, like, her character needed to sneak into a party to get a piece of jewelry from someone. Sure. And she had to get past the guards and blah, 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 blah like, charming okay. someone. And she asked afterwards how much I had prepared. And literally all I prepared was the guards. Sure. And everything else was, I, fig- I figured it was gonna, all going to fall apart come the guards. And it didn't, which was surprising. So we had to kind of improv the rest. But when I go into my main kind of campaigns, I do actually, I'm a big planner. I plan lots yeah. of stuff. Um, it's, it's like literally your job. So. <laughs> yes. But I want to know what your, where your preference is, how much you would choose to prepare, and of the stuff you prepare, how much of it actually gets used versus how much is improvised Boy, at the end is, of the day. I, you, you gotta you gotta just hang me out to dry, don't you? Yeah, dude. All right, That's what all we're right, here to right. do. Let's air it out. So we're here to get the skeletons out of the closet, literally and figuratively. Let's so, go. it's a very it's a tough question because it definitely it, it's a it's a topic by topic thing, right? So I have at home uh, sitting on my table. It is a map of the world. It is roughly three and a half feet wide, I think. About two feet. It's a small world, but dude. It's a small world. (laughs) Anyway. So. (laughs) There's roughly enough world for three rats. There is enough for maybe three rats. They will fight. That is actually the goal of the world. Let's see which rat wins. When I go into D&D, I think, how do I make these rats fight? Anyway, so <laughs> I'm, into this, got... I'm into this origin, sorry, I'm into this origin story now where Batman. a world was formed by three rats fighting and it's the pieces of the thing that broke off that formed the world, so it's three rat gods. You can't have it, that's my. That's the actual story of my campaign, Josh. God, John. <laughs> um, so... I have a map. It's it's fairly large. It's it's about it's about the size of the table we we typically use to play, um, and it is stuffed. It has four continents. It's got twenty different countries, I think. Sure. Every country has three or four towns in yeah, it. Yeah, and I yeah, can yeah. tell you about all the people and the populace and uh, kind of the things surrounding them. There was a lot of thought that I put into that because I want to build a functioning world, and this this ha- this has to deal with a lot of the improv versus uh, structure thing, right? So knowing knowing this, right, going forward, I would say on average I put maybe two to three hours of preparation time for the actual session. Um, really, into each session? Into 
I, I would say it's probably about two hour two hours into each session. Oh, that's not too shabby. It's not it's not bad. It's not a concentrated two hours. It's not like I'm sitting there like staring at my screen like words illuminate yourselves. <laughs> Let right, me right, right. find you so I may give these peasants a tale. <laughs> in in sincerity, I put roughly two hours of, like, not loose prep time, but some good prep time in there. And a lot of my a lot of my time is also, like, just shower thoughts. Just kind of, like, as I'm, like, just doing whatever in, like, my life, I'll be kind of thinking sometimes about D&D. But about two hours into each session, which is a lot to some people. It's not very much to others. But it never has to be more than that. Because the world itself is so structured as is, you know? So let's say, uh, if I were to write up uh, what I think my party is going to do. Okay. And let's say, alright, so, as a generic thing, my party has entered this town. And I have led them to a local inn, and there's a message board. And on that message board, there is some kind of hook, some kind of quest line. There's uh, somebody Three gone rats missing. Fighting. Three yeah. rats fighting. Oh my god. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> because there weren't three rats fighting. There were always goblin playing dice, though. Okay. That was literally part of every, every, every inn. Because my party, the first bar that we ever went into, they were goblin playing dice. You okay. know, it's just like a, just a thing. There are a lot of things as DMs that we just describe pieces of the world as pretty much complete throwaway. Just the idea of there is stuff around you. Things right. are going on. Yeah. Part of, part of being a DM is kind of making your players think that. Yeah, you want to paint a picture for them. You don't want them to... You want to leave enough to the imagination, but you do want to set up a, a basis for them to kind of build that imagination off of. You know? Exactly. That's exactly right. And so, in, in this bar, there was some goblin playing dice in the corner. And I'm sure. like, they're not doing anything. They have a quest here. They're going to do something else. Nope. Nope. They sat right down with those goblins, and they played some dice. And for some reason, the paladin wants to cheat at dice. Sure. Beautiful, right? Oh and boy. then he the gets one caught. class you gotta role play as, and he decides to cheat, and they catch on because you know I, I, I'm like okay they'll have some project, perception checks they got sleight of hand whatever, and they catch on, and they start a fight. There's a brawl, and like three of them die, like three of the goblins like actual die. Oh my god! And it's like uh, the entire place gets turned over. And they get thrown out. It's great. And from then on, in the next bar we go to, I'm describing it. And one of them pipes up and says, are there any goblin playing dice? And I swear to God, I just looked at them. I stared at them for about three or four seconds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are. From then on, it was canon. It had to be. So every time. <laughs> I have a similar joke that came Please. up. Uh, and it's someone you know about. You oh. probably didn't realize he came about by a joke. But his name is Joffrey. Oh, I know. This was a similar joke. So yeah. I had one of my earlier parties in my professional career. Uh, actually, it was before my professional career. Uh, this was back when I was just playing for funsies in a random town. And they were looking for a merchant. And I created this guy named Joffrey. Uh, and Joffrey <laughs> is this wacky voiced. Uh, Why don't you give us some Joffrey? Uh, I, I know I, I am going to. I'm going to air out my own dirty laundry here and say Joffrey's voice is directly inspired by Garfield the Deals Warlock from the McElroy Brothers. Of course. So I just want to make sure that's not like, I'm not trying to like rip them off. Like I appreciate what they have done for the D&D &D community. <laughs> um, but uh, so, so Joffrey talks about something like this. Welcome adventurers to Joffrey's assorted merchandising. How can I help you today? That's his usual like thing. And I just spiked him like four times while using Joffrey's voice. Beauty. Uh, and I'm going to keep it in there. They can't stop me. <laughs> um, so, but it wasn't, didn't used to be Joffrey's assorted merchandise. It used to just be 
Joffrey. Uh, and he was just a guy out in the street. So they, they met with him. They bought their stuff. They said they, and then he would say he, uh, he had to go do something. And they went off and they went to do something else. And they went try to find a different shop. And he was there too. And that was because, like, as it started as a joke, me using the same voice. And they're like, wait, you're back already? You just packed up shop and you have a different shop? He's like, no, I own all the shops here. And that just became a thing. So Joffrey became this, like, powerful wizard merchant who owns shops everywhere. And he has now appeared in most, if not all, of my campaigns since then. I've developed his backstory immensely. <laughs> uh, he was involved in the final battle of one of my big campaigns at one time. He has a lovely tiefling wife. Uh, he does have a lovely tiefling wife, which is a huge spoiler, but I'm not going to cut it out. So if anyone's listening to this podcast, spoiler alert, he has a lovely <laughs> tiefling wife. That is Josh, a you thing. missed the spoiler alert. You're supposed to do it before I say the spoiler Too late. It's too late now. Got it. Okay. I, this, it <laughs> we're, we're recording this live. There's no way to go back and edit things in podcast medium, so it's out in the air forever now. I mean, honestly, what are we going to do? All right. Um, so. So, yeah, uh, a lot of a lot of important things, I think, come up through that that instance of players, dis- like, noticing something. Yeah. Uh, and I want to talk about that now, which is what makes something important in a campaign? Right. What what makes a character important? What makes a, a plot point important? What makes what makes those players fall in love with the random characters that were throwaways <laughs> like goblins playing dice or Joffrey the merchant? What makes people stick to those characters? So there, there are a few ways to do this. Either you have somebody who's genuinely compelling or interesting, they have things going on. You make them either an important figure in a in a town or uh, in, a, sure. in their quest or whatever, or you can give them a puppy. Now, <laughs> hold on. No, 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 you're so right. I know exactly because where you're going. You know exactly yeah. what I mean. When you have a character who is just so, so lovable or so unique or quippy in themselves, or they're so cute and adorable and helpless, and the helpless players will one. latch on to them. You know, especially because as, as DMs, we know our players, we know their characters, we know their characters exceptionally well because that's part of our job. Yeah. So we know exactly what kind of puppy that these characters want. And the th- I agree, absolutely, but I also feel like a lot of the puppies happen by accident. Oh, you are not wrong. Be- and I think maybe that becomes because your throwaway characters, you're trying to just make them kind of like fun because you don't want D&D to be fun. And by doing that, you instinctively give them attributes you know your players will like. Yeah. Which is the the short that's that's the failure. That's not I wouldn't say failure, but that's the that's where it all falls apart. <laughs> that's where your throwaway character. Uh, I have a char- I have a guard in a city named um, Jareth. Yeah, and he's a guard that like gives them high fives as they pass, and they love him. They hired him into a business like <laughs> it's, like it's it's all the little things, you know. That's that's Absolutely. it's the stuff you do just like oh this is kind of a fun goof that sticks with your players. It's it, when you know. You know you've got them when they say, oh, character, are you coming too? <laughs> yeah. You've gotten that question, I'm sure. I get that question, but I also get the question of, like, can we keep him? Can we can keep, we keep her? Like, they, they'll ask each <laughs> other, they'll ask each other, like, ooh, can we keep... I, I have a character that is an NPC, been traveling with this same group I keep telling stories about for... <clears throat> since I think they, they were level, like, seven, he came on at level three. Uh, he was a cleric <laughs> that they hired to cast an identify spell, a knowledge cleric. Yeah. Um, and literally, they refer to him as their son. And I've had <laughs> I've had players in the group, like PCs, drop to zero or die. And they'd be like, oh, man. And this character will take, like, 20 damage. And they're like, no! No, no, not him! And they're, just so, they're so much more protective <laughs> of this NPC than they are of each other, which is hilarious to me. Oh, absolutely. I 
So I have, I have a similar story. There was an NPC. Now, I would say, in a, in a year, we probably got through between 20 and 25 sessions, just, you know, in the vein of, like, people were busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, no, I, I am very strict. I am very particular. And I say, if a player can't play, we don't have session that week. Because I want people to be there for all of it. Now, in, in, in those, in those uh, I would say, 20 to 25 sessions, around session three, they met a rogue. Her name was Antoinette. Okay. Now... This this was a session where we had just gotten done a big boss fight, and there were, like, a couple of refugees from a town. Sure. And I gave them, like, I think literally in my notes, it was just a sing. it was, like, five or six words about the people that they would find. And there was, like, uh, the old man who seems kind, but he's actually got, he's actually, like, a wizard. They see him do magic or something like that. And it's like, wow, okay, cool. And then there's, like, a dwarf who's got something to hide. Yeah. Just like whatever, sure. Eddie. And then there's, then there is, literally three words: sassy gnome broke. That was it. Those were the only things. See, I, wrote. I would also fall in love with that. Exactly. You had me at sassy. Gnome rogue is just icing on the cake. Exactly. And so I, I anticipate. I'm like, okay, they'll help these people like back to town or something. And, you know, for whatever reason, uh, the three NPCs split up. And I'm like, well, you can go with these two, the old man and the dwarf, or you can go with the rogue, who seems like she's doing okay. She'll be fine on her own. And they're like, we're going to go with her. And I'm like, sure, that makes enough sense. And <laughs> I think I think the moment about it was uh, they, were, they were camping for the night. And so uh, every night, not saying that I uh, want to do combat every session, but every night... I'll roll through the watches and I'll see, you know, what's the chances that somebody yeah. like, ambushes them. And so I wanted to kind of just get to the next part of the story, which is like, whatever. So I rolled an ambush for them and I'm like, I think we kind of all just want to go to the next day because we had just done a, a lot of combat already. I think I know where this is going. So I describe to them, I say, it's around uh, 1 p.m. It was our bard phone and he was taking watch and he begins to hear across the plains, there's a howl. And there's the, the, the trotting of feet. Somewhere off in the distance, dancing in the shadows, you can see them flicker by against the campfire light. And you can hear heavy breathing and panting of dogs. And after a moment or two, you peer into the dark and you see the head of a massive direwolf begin plodding into your campsite, circling you. And after a moment, he charges, but goes nowhere, skidding to a stop. And you look on closer inspection, you see a dagger protruding from his forehead. And you hear the whistling of Antoinette walking back to the caravan. It's and that's a, it. Yeah, so Antoinette, I could have told you that point that Antoinette, Antoinette was never leaving the party. And she literally did not. I fully Antoinette is one of the reasons. So that campaign, that, that had a soft reset. And Antoinette is one of those reasons because one of the players got so attached when she had to leave, he would have rather went with her than the party. Yep. And that was it. That's, it's, it, and again, she started as three words. That's mm -hmm. it. I had no idea what she looked like or who she was. I mean, after a few sessions, I'm like, all right, I guess this is like a thing now. Right. And I started crafting pieces of the world around her backstory and started looping it into other characters and the things that they had seen and done. And it was, it was actually very appropriate because the character who chose to split off and go with Antoinette had a piece of his backstory linked to hers. He didn't know it yet, and he'll never find out, which is, I guess, a little unlucky. But that's how things went, and it was just this, this experience of a character growing into something you never could have really foreseen. It's the beauty of D&D, &D, which is something I think I'm going to say probably every episode, but there's just so <laughs> many beautiful things about it, but I love it. It um, really is. 
But the you bring up another interesting point, which is going to be a nice transition, um, which is the the appeal of D and D, among other things, of is course. that you have complete freedom. That there's no one right or wrong way to play. There's no win condition, as Ethan and I discussed in the last episode. There's just freedom. And yeah, you want to do that within boundaries and there's limits. And I guess what I want to ask about is where those limits are because a story is more fun if everyone is involved, which means we want to give the players control over the story. We aren't, they aren't just pawns. And as someone who has years worth of campaign planned out for myself, it's tricky to do that sometimes, to give the players true agency. And I find ways to do it, but I kind of want to know where you draw the line because there has to be a line eventually. On be. one hand, so... Uh, I'm going to refer back to the same campaign I've, I've been playing with, which is uh, the idea of a great chain evil uh, that is threatening to resurface. So obviously the, the end goal is to deal with this great chain evil. But the players can take as roundabout of a way they want to get there. So I can, I'll can always set up a quest like, oh, here's the next object you need to get or here's the next place you need to go. But in the meantime, they're more than welcome to like, oh, I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go... I want to go uh, save this town, or I want to go visit this place. Uh, I want to go on this side quest to make enough money to buy a weapon I want. And that's all perfectly fine. But w there's a point in time where I've had to say, okay, we need to get back to things. <laughs> uh, and it was literally, um, it was one of those instances where we there was one player who couldn't make it, and <clears> they were about to split the party. One person was going to go off and do one side quest. The other rest of the party was going to do their own side quest. And I'm like, guys... Is it cool for me to say, I asked my players, is it cool for me to say that you both do your side quests, you get what you were looking for, and we come back together? And at this point, it had been months of side questing, which I don't regret a minute of. It was all a blast. Absolutely. Uh, and they and they all agreed. And that's that, for me, is what works. What works is if you talk to your table and be like, hey, is it cool if we do this? Mm -hmm. um, but what's the line for you? What would you prefer? What, how has agency shaped your campaigns? So I think I think part of this has to do with uh, kind of the the philosophy you have as a DM, kind of your idea of what D and D is and what it should be, and I think the world kind of naturally forms itself around that idea. So for me, I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that I grew up playing tons of fantasy RPGs. You know, I played. Uh, Elder Scrolls, like Morrowind, and I played. Uh, there was <laughs> there was a really crappy D and D game uh, on the Xbox that I used to love. Sure. But I played that. I played Neverwinter Nights. Yeah. I grew up playing Final Fantasy. I was and Golden bit, Sun. I was big on Baldur's Gate. Baldur's Gate, excellent game. Mm -hmm. Played the crap out of that. And all of these games, they're these big sprawling kind of open world RPGs. Well, yeah, okay, you're locked into the story sometimes, but you have those those sprints where you can just sort of explore the world you know yeah and some of them were more linear than others and you give concessions and all those sorts of things but the idea that the world is so much bigger than just kind of what you are doing yes i think that's one of the most important things you can kind of instill into people it's the reason that we talk about you know npcs in a bar who are supposed to be throwaways but they end up being something more it's why we talk about events happening in a town that we just try to use to kind of fill the air but players decide that they want to go after because mm -hmm. there's there, i think there's an idea among players that if you give them something they should follow it yeah you know there's definitely that idea absolutely and i'm, I'm glad you brought up like in your game examples like uh, Morrowind and stuff like that because one of the examples I always give about D&D &D and when I'm 
trying to tell, explain to people why it's so appealing is, you know, in games like that, you see a mountain in the distance and you walk towards it and it says, oh, I'm sorry, you the map ends. The world's over. You can't move any further in this direction. And in D&D, you can climb that mountain. And it's such a simple thing, but it is... At the core of things, you can do whatever you want to try and guide your campaign, but players will and should, I think, always have the ability to say, no, thank you. I'm going to dip and do my own thing. And you have to be ready I'm, I'm going to follow Antoinette. Antoinette. Antoinette, yeah. Antoinette. <laughs> uh, and y'all can, y'all have, can have fun. Yeah, I'm out. I'm out. Yeah. Looping back into this. So those are the things that I kind of grew up with. And so it ends up being that kind of my, my philosophy as a DM is that I want people to be able to explore that world. It's exactly like you talked about. I want people to be able to climb that mountain. Mm -hmm. I want to give you something that, you know, everybody can kind of take a piece of and enjoy, and it's compelling for them, whether that's a single building, whether that's an entire town or a huge quest line. Maybe it's entire areas of the game that were crafted with a certain character in mind, and they'll go or they won't. But the reason that, so I talked about the map earlier, the reason I put so much prep into that map is because I want people to be able to see this world. Like, just even on the map, even just showing them, and say, oh, okay, that sounds like a cool place. I wonder what that's about. I, I've, I think I talked a, a, a little bit about kind of what my philosophy is. Sure. Josh, what's your philosophy as a DM when you're, when you're going into a session or a campaign even? So uh, it's interesting for me because uh, my job means that I actually play the same campaign a lot with a lot of different people. Sure. So I really get to see the impact players' decisions have on it. There are some decisions that groups collectively almost always make you're right players players take bait if you give them a quest they want to follow that quest if you give them a name they want to explore that name but i've also found times it doesn't happen and if in my my goal is always going to be to tell a good story with the players which means if that means cutting or changing or adding parts of the story i'll give examples of all that right now um there's a quest very near the beginning of this campaign that leads you to a prison and you can find a prisoner there that is not the prisoner you're trying to rescue, but it is a prisoner there. Mm -hmm. And I've had some groups rescue him, which has led to him being a pivotal part of the campaign. And I've had some groups literally to say, nah, you're, we're good without you and leave him there. (laughs) And that part of the campaign is just gone. And that's okay because that's the decision they made. They live with the consequences and benefits of whatever they've done. And likewise, as adding things go, um, (laughs) I keep coming back to the same group because they keep doing wacky stuff. That's fine. But there's a there's a wand uh, called the Wand of the Wordsmith, okay. which lets you pull characters out of books. <laughs> oh, I remember this. And most of the groups just, they do the quest that involves it and they, they get rid of the wand because they turn it over to the guards like the guards ask. And this one guy, this one guy stuck it in his bag and the guard's like, where is it? He's like, I don't have that, but we, it got broken. I don't know where it went. And he deceived his way out of the situation. He kept this wand. Okay. And then later down the line, he pointed said wand at his own adventuring journal. And an important key part about this guy's backstory is that uh, he used to be much more powerful and he had his power taken from him. So a more powerful version of himself came out as a journal, realized he was like a part of a book and could be put back into that book and said... No, I'm not about that. Stole the wand and the book and <laughs> ran. 
And now they have this evil book clone of himself they needed to go and take care of, which turned into that three months of side questing I told you. Um, okay. So some things are always going to be the same. There's certain quests I'm always going to have in there. I have hundreds of pages of maps, which I love using. I love breaking them out. I think it's a lot of fun to pull out the miniatures of exactly what the people are fighting. And sometimes you just go with what they do. And you just make an interesting story. And that's that's as far as, like, that will always be my primary goal. Tell an interesting story and make sure that people are having fun. And then that's D&D. Of course. Me. Um, I want to move on because we've been talking. Boy, we could just do this for hours. But um, I want to talk about a conundrum. Uh, so in, oh, boy. In lieu of having questions from our listeners, because it's still pretty early on. We don't have those yet. Um, I have another conundrum that was brought up to me by one of my players, uh, which okay. is this. This this involves two spells, and one of which is easily the most interpretable spell in the game, which is Wish. For those who don't know the Wish spell, it is a ninth level spell, the most powerful spell in the game, and it is labeled as that. It is said in the player's handbook, this is the most powerful spell. Because not only can you replicate any spell of eighth level or lower with no cost or time, but you can also just wish for things and they'll happen, is the thing. And there's there's conditions to this. The condition is if you ask something too big, maybe you don't you get it in the way you didn't want. You have to be careful with your wording because maybe you say, oh, I want this person to be dead. And instead, they just take you forward in time until the person ages to death. Now you're in the future. Like those are, those are examples given by the book. Uh, like that's something they give you. But there are no conditions for re- replicating a spell level eight or lower. There are some spells that say or some like effect that say like this can only be reversed by blank or a wish spell. Like it's always clear, like <laughs> when in doubt, you can just wish for it. Uh, so it's very powerful. That's a lot of power. But when a player is that level of that they can cast Wish, they're allowed to be powerful. So it's Shit. okay, mostly. mostly. This loophole, if exploited correctly, okay. I would dare to say is not okay. You need to address this, and here's why. Because there's another spell we need to know about, and it's called Simulacrum. Simulacrum is a spell that takes 12 hours to cast, okay. costs 1,500 gold pieces, <laughs> and is cast on touch on something else. You need the money, you need the time, and you need a part of the th- creature you're casting it on. Is this the one that splits? It doesn't split anything. It creates an illusory okay. version of this thing made out of snow or water or ice that is an exact replica, save for a few things. Okay. One. It can't get any spell slots or recover hit points by resting. It can only recover hit points by being repaired, which is also very expensive and time-consuming. Uh, it can't learn any n- new things, nor can it grow more powerful or gain any new desires or anything like that because it's, it's stuck where, where <clears throat> it was. It's, it's a replica of a moment in time. Yeah, so it creates an image of... And it does obey your commands, okay, which sure. is a key, fa- a key factor. <laughs> okay. Typically, you would cast this on yourself. <laughs> you don't have to cast this on yourself. You can cast this on someone else. If you cast Simulacrum again your first simulacrum vanishes, okay? Now, maybe you see where I'm going with this, maybe you don't, but let's say you're a 20th level wizard. Okay. V strong, V strong, ready to go, and you cast simulacrum. Sure. And you create another 20th, oh, sorry, one other difference, half the hit points of the original. Sure. You create a double, double of yourself, a 20th level wizard. They can't gain spell slots, but they can use them. Sure. That 20th level wizard, he's not going to cast simulacrum. That's a lot of money and time. He's going to cast wish. Sure. To replicate the, the ability of Simulacrum. But he's not going to cast it on himself. He's going to cast it on you. He's going to create another Simulacrum of you. Which is legal because it's not you casting spell. It's your Simulacrum. And so on and so forth ad infinitum. Creating doppelganger. It takes one action to cast Wish. In, over the course of one minute, you could have ten of yourself. Okay. At half HP, who all obey your commands, 
have all your spell slots except for the one they needed to cast Wish and are effectively like this infinitely. You could do this. Oh, that was a minute. You could make 10. In an hour, you can make 600. Okay. An army of powerful wizards. Wizards more powerful than any two people should be in the same party. One of your players tries to do this. What do you do? So I have I, my own solution to this, but I want to hear yours. Yeah, yeah, no. So I'll start. I'll start with, I would like to see the text of Wish and Simulacrum. Is okay. that something we can pull up real quick? Uh, yeah, well, we'll pause this, but uh, yes. Um... So, okay. All right, John has done his research. Um, I paused the podcast for roughly three days, and I'm very tired and hungry, but we are going to continue the conversation now. I've actually been hoping that he would just pass out so I wouldn't have to give him an answer to And then this. he would just steal my computer and run. Yeah, no, that was the idea. Unfortunately, not the case, so I guess I have to actually do this. Great. Beauty. So actually, before we even answer this, I have a question for you. Yeah. The, the, the foundation of it is, why not? That's a... Why not let a player do this? A- God, I was hoping you were going to go that direction. Yeah. I do, because I I do have a solution, but I think it's, I think this is probably one of the most important things as a DM, and it's part of improv, too. It's the, the yes and principle. Yes. Now, for those who are unfamiliar uh, with improv acting, uh, one of the first things that you'll ever learn is called yes and. The idea is that when a situation, a question, a statement, anything is propped to you, you never say, well, no, that's not how it is. Because that doesn't move anything forward. Nah, that ends the scene right there. You say, so let's say, oh, Josh, your brother's right there. You know, your long lost brother who's been missing for 15 years. Oh my God, it's Bartholomew, my long lost brother. Uh, I thought he was dead in the Third World War. So yeah, so on and so forth. It's taking what you present me and adding more information to it to make it more interesting rather than just letting it be stagnant. Now, this is not the exact thing that we are, that I'm talking about in the situation. But it's this principle that when your players want to do something... You should reward them for their creativity. Exactly. God, yes. Yes, exactly. So, I knew I was... I knew I brought the right person on to talk about this. <laughs> so, do you, do you have a reason why not? Uh, no, not at all. In fact, my solution is entirely roleplay-based. It is not mechanical at all. So, before we get into that, you said you did have a fix for it. Yeah. So... Okay, I'll tell you, I will tell you the why not. The why not is if a player who thinks they're clever looks this up and says, aha, I can break the game this way. That's my why not. But even then, I still think I would solve my role-playing solution. But if you needed to quick mechanical solve this, what would your stop be? Quick mechanical solve? Yeah. Uh, is that this thing is an exact replica of you. Essentially, in-world... Now, I can... This is the other beauty, the other half of this. The other beautiful part of being the DM. I decide how the world works. Yes. I say, if you create a simulacrum, it is an exact copy of you. So when it casts one, the previous one vanishes? Gone. Because it's still you. And the thing is, other than a mis- other than an errant aww from a player, they're all going to get that. They're going to understand. Because the players, want, they understand that this is not a game that's meant to be won. Yes. This is a game we're all playing and together. God, if they don't understand that by the time they're level 17 when they can cast a spell, they are not playing the game right. Exactly. But can I tell you what, so, do you have a thing you would do in-game instead? Because I do. In-game? A, a, <laughs> a way to both reward and kind of... Both reward? Because I've, I've got something I know, I know what I would do to now, solve this. Now, this does require, I think, a little more, because... All right, I, I'm very particular about this. If I want to reward a player for their creativity, I want to give them something that's unique to them, right? So, 
I would say a little more information for something exact. Let's say, so this is something created out of ice or snow, right? Sure, sure. So let's say there's this idea, right, where you create a simulacrum of yourself and you're on like a mountainside or something and this snowy figure rises up and you notice it's got all the same features, looks exactly like you. Yeah. The spell works perfectly. You command this thing to cast Wish. So I'll say this. Your, the snowy clone uh, reacts to your command, and it begins uh, encanting the words for the wish spell. But as it does, as it, uh, as it does, you notice uh, that steam begins to rise off it. All this heat and power of a spell that it truly cannot hold, for it is not a human form of mm. any sorts. Absolutely. And after six seconds, uh, this thing, there's a brilliant flash of light and explodes. You are now covered in snow, and you look to where this where this clone was, bewildered by what happened. And you see there that there is, let's say, a container made of the sheerest crystal you have ever seen, superheated by the most powerful magic in the world. You pick it up, and there's nothing. And you, you decide, I'll carry this with me. You, put, you tuck it into a breast pocket. About an hour later, you hear something in your head. And of course, I'll have something more specific at this sure, point. Sure, sure, sure. But this is the now. This is the newest part of you, a quest line. You have rewarded them not with more power, but with more interesting kind of things to deal with. More your content. own quest. Can I tell you my quest that I would go for? I don't. So my mechanical solve is very similar to what you just did, which is illusions can't cast wish. They can't have desires because they're just following your commands, and wish is based on desire. Shapes reality based on desire. But that's boring. So here's be- I think. All right, you have three <laughs> clones. You have four clones. You have five clones. The sixth clone comes out. And here's an important thing to remember. They don't listen to you. They listen to the one. It's a chain of command. They listen to the one right above them. (laughs) So you have to say, hey, tell this one to tell this one to do this, so on and so forth. And this new one comes out, a perfect copy of you who wants just as much freedom as you do and goes, this sucks. I don't want to be number six. I'm going to be number one. I'm going to dip. Before they can get their chain of command down to me. I'm a powerful wizard. I'm going to teleport away and cast my own similar crumbs on stuff. Now you have a rogue clone that is making <laughs> his own clone army. Which might also have splinter factions. And you need to hunt down this other version. Because it's not as simple as just ha- having them cast it again. You can't have your similar crumb cast it again. Because they can't gain spell slots. So now you need to actually hunt down this clone who has his own agenda because he's been so warped by the reality, like by so many desires lapping on top of each other that you now have this creature that's more wish than spell. Um, and I think it makes a much more interesting kind of side quest than just saying it doesn't work, you know? Now, Josh, here's my question I'm posing to you. Hit it. You've given me this conundrum. Uh, this has happened to you? I no, not at all. This is something that's been talked about. This is something that uh, that same player I keep bringing up brought up to me <laughs> to ask how, how I would solve it if it did come up. And how long did it take you to construct that roleplay answer? Uh, that... Actually, both questions. How long did it take you to construct each solution? The mechanical one was, uh, I wouldn't say instantaneous, but once I kind of l- looked through the rules of the spell, it was pretty quick. As soon as I saw Illusion, I knew that was my out for the mechanical one. Um, for the other one, I would say probably about five minutes, which I would not be able to do on the spot. Uh, that, that would be a little tricky. I would probably need to have that same conversation with my players to kind of figure that out. Very fair. Yeah. I just, I was curious because I, I was like, wow, this is a really good solution. And like, this is, this is actually one of the things that I love about being a DM. When you think of something truly clever or truly interesting, you know, your players, you'll know you have them when they just sit back in the chair. Yep. 
I've got this. I've got this great picture of people just reacting in the middle of a very difficult and intense storyline specific boss fight. And it's like someone has their head in a trash can. Someone's like <laughs> leaning back in a chair. Someone's like has a head on a table. And it's just such a good moment of like seeing how invested they all are. And that's it's definitely a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. We've been talking for almost an hour now. Beautiful. Uh, which is a beautiful thing. But boy, oh boy, we, we should probably call it quits there. Uh, <laughs> I want to thank you guys for listening to uh, Natural 19. Uh, if you had a good time, uh, tell your friends about it. Uh, we're trying to word of mouth is our best advertiser. Uh, if you have any questions you want answered or debated, sort of like that last one we just did, but a real question: If you are a player in a difficult situation or a DM with a difficult player, uh, go ahead and email us at natural nineteen podcast at gmail.com. That is the digits nineteen natural one nine podcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, send us your qualms, send us your conundrums. We will happily solve them for you. Otherwise, uh, check out the other episodes if you have not done so already. And I think that pretty much covers it. Uh, I want to say a big thank you to John Solera for joining me on the episode today. Thank you so much uh, for having me. And I would like to end by posing a D&D question, just kind of a quick one-off thing to kind of close out with, which is this. Um, if you could be any D&D race aside from human in real life, what D&D race would you want to be? Variant human. <laughs> hey John <laughs> Hey John <laughs> You've been a lovely audience everyone Hey John you suck and I never want you on my show again <laughs> This has been Natural 19 Catch you all next time <laughs>